0: i <laughs> listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: It is Veterans Day, and we have a wonderful story to share with you today, and we'll do that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu.
1: Live uncommon.
0: Joining us today, the Reverend Dr. Mark Schreiber. He's U.S. Navy chaplain, retired, and author of Nailed Moral Injury, a Response from the Cross of Christ for the Combat Veteran. Chaplain Schreiber, thanks so much for joining us on the Coffee Hour today. Thank you for asking me. Pleasure to be here. So tell us about your path that led to the vocation of Navy chaplain.
2: Well, I come from a military family. My uh, grandfather served in World War I in the Navy. My dad served in World War II as a pharmacist mate, which is the Navy's term for medic. For three and a half years in combat, dad was part of the first beach battalion in the Mediterranean and did beach landings at the North Africa, Sicily, Salerno, Anzio, and Southern France. So, those are all big places and the pharmacist is made. Usually, he goes in about the second or third wave to, to set up shop on the, on the beach and take care of the wounded. My older brother, Neil, was a Marine in Vietnam, two tours of combat there, and he had, uh, consequent issues, depression and other things throughout his life, so and then myself from uh, 1980 to 2005. I, so it's, I think it kind of runs in the family. And it's an exciting career opportunity. And I was glad and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world.
1: <laughs> Can you share the, the, who, who you served as a Navy chaplain uh, during your time in the service?
2: Sure, Sarah. Just a couple of highlights. My first tour of back in duty was 82-85. That was with Marines. Uh, Marine Air Group 29, which was stationed uh, contiguous to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And you may remember 1983 is when the Beirut bombing of the battalion barracks went down. We lost the 241 Marines and had one blast, which was the biggest loss of life for the Marine Corps in Iwo Jima in World War II. I was stateside when it happened, and we had uh, to make all the Kiko calls, which is the Navy acronym for when you go to the family with another officer and you break the news to them that uh, the Marine is not coming home. So we, we did that. And uh, for about two or three weeks, it was a, a terrible, difficult time. Following MAG-29, I served aboard a brand new aircraft carrier called Theodore Roosevelt. So the flow to this day, when you're the first crew to take a brand new ship out and get it dirty, you're called a plank owner, which is a distinct honor. And not every chaplain can claim that honor. So I'm proud uh, of that uh, set of orders and that event for about 30 months most of which time was spent at sea. And then I had reserve time as well, walked to the reserve billets with the Marine Corps. And my last duty was the four years of active duty with the Marines and the recruiting command based in New Orleans, responsible for about 900 Marine Corps recruiters that would seek to get the applicants out of our public high schools to join the Corps. So those are some highlights of what I've done a
0: what would you say through your experience did you learn about combat veterans as a chaplain
2: well i think two words describe the combat's veteran best and i would call it selfless sacrifice right so the, the combat veteran and anyone who puts on the uniform is potentially saying the same thing that i'm willing to put myself in harm's way for the sake of others and the others would be not just those that fight alongside me, but my family, the way of life, our country, our constitution. So that's a, uh, it's a noble effort. And I think you would agree it's very Christ-like in its attitude. So you don't know what will have to do with combat. And to fight with that kind of a commitment of sacrifice, selflessness for others, is truly a, a warrior's code uh, that they seek to emulate and keep intact as they fight. So I think that, that's what I would say.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, the author of the the title of your book is Nailed Moral Injury, A Response from the Cross of Christ for Combat Veterans. Can you uh, unpack what what moral injury means?
2: A moral injury is a term that the VA, Veterans Administration, has coined via their counselors about 10 years ago now. And we would call it issues of conscience in the church. Well, issues of conscience, well, the church has dealt with issues of conscience since the church began, or if you want to take it all the way back to Adam and Eve, well, we know what issues of conscience are all about. So the VA uses that idea, that concept, and calls it moral injury. And basically, moral injury is this. It is not PTSD. This is what the BA has discovered through extensive counsel. It a, it's a syndrome of guilt and shame, of self-handicapping behaviors that flow from the guilt and shame. Uh, of anger, and of demoralization. And why is that? It's because that somehow in combat, things have been transgressed morally. Deeply held beliefs in the warrior's mental makeup have been transgressed. And because of that, the conscience is uneasy. It's trouble. Or it accuses the veteran. And that's moral that's distinct from PTSD, which is basically a, a trauma-based event in which uh, big blasts and violence wreck the body injure the body physically. And there's a special treatment for that as well via the VA. But moral injury can be an invisible wound. The veteran can look perfectly normal, but inside his heart, his mind, his conscience is churning negatively against him. And he can't get, he can't get away and oversell certain thoughts after combat.
0: Well, you mentioned that this is not PTSD, but different from that. Many of us are probably familiar with PTSD. That's been a term that I think we've known for over a, well, probably two decades now that that we've been familiar with. How then would you say is moral injury different from PTSD?
2: I think the difference is shown up clearly in the way the VA counselor and others would actually treat PTSD uh, versus moral injury. In PTSD, often you try to reframe the trauma, the experience for the veteran by getting them to go back to the actual event, that is to conjure it up to face the fear and to create an environment where you are exposed in a prolonged manner to the fear in hopes that the fear would diminish because now you are facing exactly what happened to you. And though you may relive it, if you do this over time, the impact and the power of PTSD can diminish in your mind. Now with oral injury, if it's an issue of conscience, and that's what it is, to do that repetitively makes it only worse because if there's no help, if there's no soothing of the conscience, if there's no forgiveness for the soul, then every time you bring it up, you make the person feel more guilty and worse. And consequently, you could actually person to uh, a terrible act of violence against themselves.
0: Did that help? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a very interesting difference uh, in how these, these combat scenarios would affect somebody in both uh, well, in body, mind, and spirit, that, that there are a lot of, of consequences that, that happen when, when our soldiers are on the battlefield. What role does moral injury play in the significant number of suicides of, of combat veterans in the U.S.?
2: Before I answer that, let me, let me add the, this, uh, this point that out of all of the the folks that serve in combat, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, one should not guess nor surmise from that, that everybody comes back automatically with moral injury. That's not the case. Most of our combat veterans do not feel bad or guilty about killing the enemy. Most of them would typically say they were shooting at me and I'm gonna shoot back. And if they die, that's the way it is. That's what I'm trained to do. However, combat is unpredictable and it's a toxic stew to the conscience. And things happen in combat that you can't control or you think that you could have controlled, and it just went awry. So there are things like collateral damage, innocent people die and it's unintended. One of the interviews in the back of my book in the book, Nail talks about the fact that often the bad guys, the terrorists would come out of their homes in Iraq and Afghanistan or the neighborhood, whatever, dragging some young child and placing them in front of them as a human shield Mm -hmm. and then shoot over their heads. And our Marines, now, if you're in a firefight, you can't just stand there and, and wait for the guy to stop shooting. You shoot back because loss of life will, will soon occur on your side. And as you do that, the loss of that the child may be taken. That's unintended, but it's collateral damage. And if you know that you're the one that pulled the trigger, you got to live with it. And you live with it for the rest of your life. So those are, those are troubling issues. That's just one example. Uh, there's, there's many things that happen. You go back to Vietnam, you call it an airstrike you, oh, against a village that was attacking your folks in the field. You go back and inspect, and you realize that in that airstrike, innocent uh, old men and women and children and infants died as well. And you got to live with it. So, you know, war is a toxic environment. It, probably 20 to 25 percent of our folks, according to the VA estimates, will come back with some issues of PTSD or moral injury or both combined. So it's a big issue. The 2.7 million have served outrage in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're talking about 500,000 people uh, just from these last two wars. And then the suicide rate that the VA has done extensive, extensive uh, interviews. They've looked at the records of 55 million vets here recently. And they came to the conclusion that 20 to 22 veterans a day in this country take their life. that's equivalent to about uh, 6,000 a year. And when you consider that loss of life out of a pool of about 43,000 Americans who take their life every year, that's a high suicide rate, way too high. Then you add the fact to the study that of those 22 a day, that 70% of these vets are 15 years and older. Now, you would think that if you had issues of of conscience after combat, and you couldn't live with yourself, that you probably would take your life sooner rather than later. But here you have vets who are far removed from the battlefield, 15, 20, 30 years out from the last combat experience taking their life. And why is that? I think it's because the conscience, it it morphs over time. And these thoughts of combat come to your mind, either you recall them deliberately or they just intrude upon your heart. You can't get rid of them. And as a consequence, The only way to stifle the voice in your head may be to take your own life. Now, nobody knows what a a suicide person is thinking when they actually take their life, but the evidence seems to point in that direction.
0: We're learning about moral injury today with the Reverend Dr. Mark Schreiber. He's U.S. Navy chaplain, retired and author of Nailed Moral Injury, a response from the Cross of Christ for the Combat Veteran. We have more to learn about moral injury, and particularly what does the Word of God and the Cross of Christ have to do with this? What does it speak to those um, who've experienced moral injury? We'll continue the conversation here on The Coffee Hour in just a moment. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth. <laughs>
0: welcome back to the coffee hour i'm andy bates
1: i'm sarah goseth
0: we're talking with reverend dr mark shriver he's u.s navy chaplain retired and author of nail moral injury a response from the cross of christ for the combat veteran i'm i'm learning uh, so much i think really appreciate your insights that you're providing for us today, Chaplain Schreiber, particularly about Mm -hmm. moral injury. What then, since moral injury is, it just plays such a significant role in the, the, the complications from, from, for combat veterans, what then do you propose is, is Helpful and God pleasing treatment for moral injury? What, what role does, where does the application of forgiveness make a difference for moral injury?
2: Well, they're an excellent question. In the counseling world of the VA, they are not, as you can imagine, commissioned to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not their lane, that's not what they do. Now, we have Christian chaplains who serve in the VA, and that certainly is their task to the preach the gospel, to counsel with the gospel, and so on. But uh, that's not the the nature of all who counsel our vets. So the VA has identified throughout their studies and their work that the key ingredient and element to healing the veteran suffering from moral injury is forgiveness. And further, they would define that as self-forgiveness. So the veteran who is suffering from issues of collateral damage or in combat, he feels he didn't move quick enough to save his buddy's life and his buddy died or things where... It just went wrong and there was too much unnecessary violence and his conscience has been transgressed, his deeply held beliefs have been transgressed. Self-forgiveness is the solution to be able to put forth. So they would try then to reframe in counseling the veteran's thoughts and to get him to understand what he went through from a different perspective. Hopefully that will broaden and alleviate the conscience and his accusation. One the primary way they would do this, as it's described in uh, Nash and Litz's book called Adaptive Disclosure, is to move the veteran to a position where he actually imagines someone as a moral authority figure in his life who could counsel him and talk to him and soothe his troubled conscience. And often that is his own father. And if his father is deceased, the counseling practice would be to conjure up the image of his loving, kind father and give him advice or help to soothe his conscience. Now, you can imagine if the veteran had a good, positive relationship with his own father, that this would be a powerful tool. Because for most of us, if mom or dad say, well, it's okay. This is what happened to you, but, you know, there's there forgiveness and some things couldn't be helped and I forgive you and so on, it would soothe the person's conscience. So it works. But does it work deep enough and does it work long enough? Right? That's the question. So for the Christian counselor, what's the difference? The cross of Christ is a different reality. It is not a conjuring up of a mental image of a heavenly father who's dispensing forgiveness like Santa Claus. It is rather the reality that in the cross of Christ, God has redeemed the entire world. He's redeemed all of the toxic stew that is called war. He's redeemed every atrocious act in war through his cross. So, the veteran has to be led to a greater and deeper understanding of the cross of Christ, where this, this man from Nazareth is tortured and beaten and crucified in such a bloody, ugly way that that cross is actually God's answer to his soul and is greater than anything he has seen or done in combat. Now, that's easier said than done, but that objective cross is a transcendent reality, it's not a floating foggy, self-made forgiveness, but a reality that must penetrate the mind of the combat war. Does that answer the question?
0: Yes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell us more about, about that. How do you bring the word of God and the cross of Christ to those who are uh, really suffering from this moral injury and, and really struggling with that?
2: It, it, uh, the key word, Sarah, is conscience. And this is all that's up on my book. Uh, in detail, everybody has, let's, let's start here. Everybody, according to uh, God's word, and I think just by uh, empirical evidence and observing people, everyone has a sense, a basic sense of right and wrong. We call it natural law. So everybody knows basically you shouldn't kill your neighbor for no good reason. You know, you shouldn't live, steal, you shouldn't adulterize, and so on. So there's a basic sense of right and wrong. And in addition to that, everybody has a conscience, a police in their head, between their ears, that says you shouldn't do this. Or you should do this, all right? The problem is is that conscience may be normed incorrectly to a sense of right and wrong or to some higher authority. And if the conscience does allegiance to a higher authority that is not in harmony with God's word, there's big problems. For example, from Scripture, Paul the Apostle, he thought in good conscience before his conversion, what? That he could torture and kill and separate Christians and get rid of them. In good conscience, he did, because his conscience was falsely normed to a wrong truth, truth as he saw it. When you look at the uh, terrorist in 9-11, planes in the buildings uh, committing suicide and murder and mayhem, their conscience was falsely normed to the Quran, falsely normed to a, an ideal that told them, if I sacrifice my life for God, I will be instantly transported into paradise as a martyr. All right? So the conscience is key. It has to be normed correctly. And this is where the counselor must be skilled and adept at bringing the cross of Christ home to the veteran and to his con- that Conscience then has to be normed in the sense that the cross of Christ is greater than accusing dec- conscience. Again, it's easy to say. But the counselor has to fight against all of the barriers the warrior would throw up, all of the, the I can't forgive myself attitude. Or the warrior, the combat warrior is saying, Well, I'll make up for what I did. I will amend my life. He has to go against all of those thoughts. And somehow leave it at the foot of the cross. So the veteran looks up and realizes that this bloody mess of a man is greater than anything I went through. And this cross of Christ, and what he did for me forgive his mind's sins, when he believes that and stays there, his conscience will be healed and begin to be healed and stay there over time. It's not easy, of course, but that's the answer.
0: How do we, as civilians and brothers and sisters in Christ, care for our neighbor veterans, especially, you know, combat veterans, what are the do's and don'ts? What are the things that we need to know, um, when, when caring for, when just being neighborly to our brothers and sisters who are combat veterans?
2: Well, first of all, American culture and attitudes toward the veteran have changed since Vietnam, thank God. Uh, the Danes are gone when in, those in uniform would be seen at airports back in the 70s, and they would be spat upon and cursed and called baby killers and all the rest of that stuff. So that's gone from the American psyche, at least if it's point and gotten. That's a good thing. However, the pendulum can you know, go too far to the other extreme. There's no need to, to pity the devil. There's no need to, to think that because he went into the war, that he's broken, he can't think straight, he can't do anything. So. Pity is not the answer. On the other hand, there's no need to idolize him or to say that uh, this is a Superman, a superhero, and my God, look what they did, and who, who could do this? And it's true. I mean, there's only 1% of the whole nation is actually in the in uniform and under arms uh, right now. About 2 million, 2.7 million, maybe. Under arms, out are 350 million Americans. That's a very, very small percentage. So don't pity, don't idolize. However, realize that you should thank him for his service, him or her, should honor what they did and what's good. But now, if you understand what could happen in war, how it can be so toxic to a person's conscience, beware of the fact that as you compliment them, they may receive it graciously, and they may be saying in the heart and mind, if you really knew what I did, if you really knew what I saw, if you really knew what I didn't do and should have done, if you really knew how I feel in my conscience, maybe you wouldn't be so proud of me. Maybe you wouldn't be so kind and so honored. Not to say that they don't deserve that, but that's what the veteran might feel, depending upon the state of his own mind and his own conscience. So and I think uh, that would kind of outline the attitude, I think, the American tradition hits you. American citizens should have toward our our warriors and our vets.
1: Is there a place for asking deeper questions about wanting to know their stories? Is is there a place for that, of of trying to have some, I don't know, relationship or or empathy with with our veterans?
2: Of course. I think that to do so, first of all, the veterans normally only tell their war stories to other vets. And they do so because they feel you've got a, a comrade in arms, somebody who's been there who understands the least the environment, and so on. They will do so and share their stories with civilians as well, but you, you have to develop a uh, relationship of trust and empathy to do so. And listen, you know, more than this talk.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, and that's a good thing. As far as the church, the, the church needs to carve out a niche for our veterans when they come back home. I mean, historically, Israel did this, and you can read about it in numbers after war, and the ritual cleansing they went through. In my book is a, a, a rite of healing and uh, ritual cleansing, but the church, any church in our synod or any denomination can exercise and put in the place so that the church appears to be to the vet a friendly place and a place that is seeking to understand his own combat, his or her own combat experiences. And that's important in such a uh, ritual, a rite of healing and cleansing person would be drawn to the cross of Christ. He would be reminded of the waters of baptism. And by the way, most of our, we, we still live in a Christian country, regardless of all the attacks we see in the culture, and probably eighty, maybe, maybe 90% of everybody who wears a uniform, even today, has been, has been baptized by water into Christ Jesus at some point in their life. So there's a connection there. But our, a lot of our veterans don't live in church. They live in the shadows of our church. And our churches need to be friendly in its sense, and creating this ritual niche for them so that they can come back and uh,
0: connect with the cross of Christ again. Would that help?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes, yes. Chaplain Schreiber, where can we find your book, Nailed Moral Injury, a response for, from the cross of Christ for the combat veteran?
2: It's at Amazon.com. If you type in my name, Mark J, middle initial for James, Mark J. Schreiber, Got to spell it right, like the Germans, S-E-H-R-E-I-V-E-R. It'll pop up right away. It's also in various other places, Barnes & Noble, Target, uh, a host of other places. But Amazon.com probably has the monopoly on it at the moment. It'll be there. It'll, It'll pop up.
0: Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Mark Schreiber, U.S. Navy chaplain, retired and author of Nailed, Moral Injury, A Response from the Cross of Christ for the Combat Veteran. Dr. Schreiber, thank you so much for being our guest on The Coffee Hour today.
2: Thank you very much for asking me. I truly appreciate the time to share the content with my folks. May our veterans hear, read,
0: and believe and find peace at the foot of the Cross of Christ. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Gilseth.